Hello, my name is Devin Johnson. I'm a business program manager on Microsoft's legal business operations, strategy, and modern legal team. I produce content for the Business of Law podcast, including this episode. This episode, we're speaking with David Rudin, Assistant General Counsel for Open Source and Standards at Microsoft. In this episode, we will discuss how to scale a practice, building partnerships and trusts, standardizing standards, problem solving and defining common goals and real issues, and seeing the broader ecosystem. Hello, today we are talking with David Rudin, Assistant General Counsel for Open Source and Standards at Microsoft. Um, originally, we were hoping to bring in a couple other folks on this conversation, but some macro issues of the world have uh, gotten in the way. And so now we get uh, some one-on-one -on -one time with the man himself. David is one of the most interesting conversationalists we have at Microsoft because he has a very broad view on really so many things in the world and he brings that to his practice and so today we're going to talk about scale and what that means uh, so David thank you for making the time to chat with us today oh, I'm really looking forward to it this should be fun so before we get into it, can you give us a little bit of your journey to the role that you have now? Because I think that context is really helpful for help for us understanding why you work as you do and some of the perspectives that you bring to your practice. Oh, happy to. So I, I think I, I, I probably went to law school because that's kind of what you were supposed to do. And I'm not sure I uh, necessarily knew what being a lawyer was. Um, but after about the first year of law school, I realized, you know, I, I'm not really enjoying this, and but I, I, I kind of am too much into it to stop. And I ended up doing a master's in information systems uh, at the same time as a not a not a dual degree, but a second degree as well. And when I came out of law school, I ended up um, thinking, God, I would never be a lawyer. But uh, I ended up working for uh, Lotus in Boston in their uh, in their consulting group, and so. I was doing a lot of software work and ended up um, following a girl to DC who turned out to be my wife. And at that point, I ended up getting a job at a technology law firm in um, DC. And this was a time when you know the dot-com boom was going on and they just needed people who understood technology. And so I spent about you know five years doing primarily technology transactions in the media space also doing work with some uh, industry standards like uh, DVD. And I, I really was probably more interested in the technology and the business side of it than the law side of it. Uh, and then the opportunity uh, came up at Microsoft to work in the standards team there. And standards turns out to be a really interesting, um, if not a bit arcane area, where it's really a combination of lots of different um, uh, pra practices. It's intellectual property. It's uh, antitrust, it's a, and it's a lot of diplomacy. And so I think a lot of what we've done in the standard side was really understanding how to get things done in large groups. Um, and then you know, we can dive into lots of different pieces of this, but uh, open standards is a way where you all agree on how things will work together, basically interoperability. But we're finding there's this growing trend in the industry around uh, open source, where open source is you get together and build the thing. And as we're seeing a lot of convergence between the two worlds, uh, we ended up merging the open standards team with the open source team to really try to you know, play well in both worlds and really accomplish a lot for the company and use the learnings from both sides for the benefit of you know, not only the company, but the industry as a whole, hopefully. So you started kind of touching on something that is a nascent theory that I have that, and of course, you know, we, we have, whenever we find something that seems to reinforce our theories, we of course latch onto them, right? Like that's, that's how <laughs> bias uh, works. So let me, let me throw something at you. Yeah. If you think about the training process for being an attorney, what it does is it really tries to reward people who are, are very good at focusing on details as like a, as a craftsperson. So <clears throat> If you think about kind of the, the way the, the dominant uh, funnel works for a lot of uh, the people who get into the legal game, 
They often start off with some type of humanity or social science, but something that requires a ton of critical thinking where you take a concept and you really break it apart and you, you try to really tear it down to its lowest level. But it's in many instances, piecework in as much as you are rewarded for being hyper focused so that you you cut things very finely. And then if you think about the other side of the realm, let's let's just call it uh, technology, uh, and let's say let's say technical work of the technology realm. So you have an MIS degree. It starts off with a very different frame, which is the system. There is a series of things that are nominally discrete that interact with each other. And so if you're going to solve a problem, you want to start by first looking at the bigger picture and thinking about how those pieces fit together. And so this is one of the fundamental tensions that I see in our work in that, and by the way, both, both of these skills are immensely valuable, but what happens is depending on where we, you know, focus more of our training, we, we may fixate on one version of us, the other, right? The very precise, the small, the individual, the different versus the commonality, the interactions, how they fit together. And I'm curious if you have any observations or perspectives on us as a profession and how we bring that that skill set in the training yeah. to bear against the problems. Yeah, I, I, I think I, I tend to agree with what, what you're saying there. And I think it even goes back to how we're trained as lawyers. Uh, I think the amazing thing is you go to law school and how do you learn the law? You learn by reading cases. And it's not just any cases. It's the cases that were really tough. And just in general, you know, if you've got a case that you're reading in law school, it's because things went very, very wrong and you went through, you know, multiple litigations and you're reading, uh, you know, complex cases that are, are, are based on some contract mis misinterpretation or a, a dispute that might not even be legal. It could be social that just led to, you know, the dispute. But as lawyers, we are trained to find what was that needle in the haystack that caused the caused the litigation, caused the dispute? And I think when we come out of law school, you go to a firm, if you go that route, and you are taught that detail is incredibly important, which it is, but you also seem to believe that every every, every transaction you work on is potentially the next litigation that you're going to read about in law school. And so I think by by nature, we are you know, probably attracted to this area uh, as just the way our minds work, but also is by training, really it reinforces that we need to be extremely detail oriented and that, you know, every thread could be the one that pulls out, you know, the rest of the sweater, so to speak. And so I think we go into, and, and that's actually encouraged in, in, in many firms at least. And I think when you move in house, there is still that natural uh, predilection to still want to find that detail and, uh, and, and glom onto it and sometimes losing track of the of, of the bigger picture and uh, you know what you're trying to accomplish. I so not shockingly, I, I agree. And one of the ways that I analogize this is, you know, when you're thinking about the training of becoming an attorney, uh, I often equate it to a knife that you're trying to get really sharp so that you can always say, oh yes, but this is different because. Because that's a very powerful till, uh, skill for advocacy, right? When you're saying, no, 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 this regulation shouldn't apply and let me explain to you why, or, oh no, this remedy is not appropriate because you know, in this instance, there are these facts that are different. And the sharper your knife is, the more skilled you are at teasing out exactly what you said, those differences, that's, and that's how you ultimately unravel the, the, the sweater as a, either an offensive or a defensive uh, approach. Right. But I'm curious, like, what, how, what, <laughs> Does that scale? <laughs> uh, usually not. Uh, I, I think one of the traps we fall into is we believe that um, every transaction we're engaged with is is kind of the special snowflake. Um, and I think where if if we want to talk about like legal platforms, I think one of the kind of maybe a unique experience that, that I've had is that in, in the industry standards sense uh, it, it practice, we would be basically setting up kind of a joint agreement between anywhere from two to 45 companies to com come up with a single agreement. 
And we could literally spend months. It's not uncommon that setting these things up from scratch can take three to nine months to you know even a year at some point. And these are very detailed negotiations. And sometimes you actually end up with provisions that if you weren't in the room, there's no way you'll even understand what they mean. But these are the things we've done to get the deal completed. But the, the I think the interesting thing that we picked up on was, so you ha in standards, it's all based on antitrust and everyone has to have signed the same paper. You can't cut special deals. And what's amazing is after spending months and months and months making sure every you know, comma is in the right place and every word is just so, and no one's happy with the end result because it's a, it's a series of complicated compromises. So you have the 10 companies that do it, they sign it up, they sign up for it. And then a week later, the 11th company comes to the table and you say, here's the paper and it comes back signed. And so it you know, kind of leaves you with this observation of what's going on here. And you know, take it to the uh, open source side. While there's a number of approved open source licenses by uh, the open source initiative, there's probably really only four or five of these licenses that are used just across the board. And they're not negotiated, they're taken as is, and open source has become the core of, of most software developments. Um, just you know, by analogy, it used to be when we'd buy a company, they might have maybe five or 10% open source. Now it's not surprising that you know, 90% of the code is open source and the rest is just you know, the, the, the software glue to tie it together. But there is massive amounts of software being developed and distributed and used under these open source licenses and lawyers aren't in, uh, involved at all. Uh, and so they're, they're really just scaling based on these agreements that aren't very well drafted, to be honest with you, but they're good enough so that uh, people can use them and there's been effectively very few lawyers and uh, almost no litigation on it, but it's powering the software industry. So let's pause for a second and reflect on the the thing you just casually dropped in. <laughs> there are, I, I don't even, I can't even rationalize the count, but effectively what you've described when you're talking about open source, and we will circle back on uh, standards in a sec, yeah. but when you're talking about open source, every time somebody is consuming an open source project or program or piece of code, that's functionally a transaction. It is, absolutely. And so the, if the concept is, you know, looking at practices that scale, like what you've just described is something happening. At, I, I, I literally can't even fathom yeah. the billions of functional transactions, maybe more, maybe more like tens of billions, hundreds, I, I don't even know that are happening that I think people don't even realize. Like this is just quietly happening and it's powering this revolution of, of you know, basically cloud enabled uh, software as a service capabilities in, in many different industries. And your, your team is just quietly making these kinds of things happen. <laughs> yeah, so I, I actually can quantify on the Microsoft side because we have developed really great tooling because we have these, you know, basically standardized uh, license agreements in the open source space. So if you look back maybe six, seven years ago, we, Microsoft, you know, open source was still a scary thing for us and we would basically review each request very carefully and we would handle, you know, 40 to 50 a year. To put that into perspective, you know, Microsoft has embraced open source and as a result right now, we will, we've processed up to 180,000 transactions per month. Um, and when you do that, you have to be very thoughtful on what you truly care about and what you really need to look at because none of us could scale to do it. So we have built a system that is highly automated, lots of self-help tools, but really has enabled us to operate at a scale that is, um, you know, almost unimaginable. But what you created, one, you, what you're effectively doing is you're being realistic about how the world works and on some level, this is a statistical approach to, to risk mitigation. Um, but you've enabled the business in this process because well, you're able to operate at the scale. And as best I can tell, you're also starting to tie the basically the policies that you think are the appropriate trade-offs for Microsoft into the engineering system. Is that right? Yeah, actually, that's, that's I think, a, a great example. So when this started, it was a legal department-run system that was you know, very manual and wasn't tied directly to the engineering group. It was basically a system that was designed by lawyers to protect intellectual property. Uh, but 
as we grew and it became more important to the company, we partnered with the engineering team. And this is vitally important that the engineering team actually owns the process process and the tooling. And um, through that partnership, we were able to have a, uh, through a great relationship with our open source programs office in particular, able to like push on each other to really determine what matters to the legal side, what matters to the developers. And when you're dealing with, you know, 50 to 100 requests a year, you can really look at everything. When you're dealing with 180,000 requests a month, you really have to be very directed and careful on what you're going to look at and why. You have to understand exactly what you're doing. And that pressure actually causes a lot of clarity and thinking uh, because things that, you know, given the time, we might look at everything. And so we've become very directed. There's basically one or two things that we're concerned about um, from a legal perspective, but not only do we have the engineering systems that build in directly with the developer tools, so developers uh, are, are interacting with these policies uh, in the tools and, and systems that they know, we've also taken a lot of feedback from the teams and made the self-help as, as thoughtful and easy as we can. So for example, um, it used to be if you were using one of these open source licenses, we had guidance that was very good, but it was it was difficult for engineers to understand. It had a lot of, you know, this is what these terms mean. It was very educational and we still have those available, but the feedback we got from developers was, you know, just tell us what to do. And so we were able to take these guidances and push them down into half page, you know, check the box. You, if you're dealing with this license, do this, this, and this. And if you want more information, we've got it for you. But again, that's a, that's has enabled engineers to just do the right thing and only really bring us in for the edge cases. So the other thing that you described in that is functionally an unbundling, right? So, so by the way, it, can we just reflect? And so you, again, you just subtly said, so we went from tens to millions, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, so that's scale, right? And, oh, yeah. and I think you're, you're raising this fantastic point, which is, when you're going uh, from basically load equals one to incremental right. uh, increases in load, that is one form of optimization, right? Like if I if I was doing five of these and I have to do a sixth one, like yeah, I have to get a little bit better, but eh, you know, I can be maybe I can throw some more people at it. Who knows? When you're going from like tens to millions, like you you fundamentally have to reimagine yeah. how the work happens and what you described sounds like effectively an unbundling process wherein initially there was effectively there was uh, the legal team that was responsible for kind of the end to end on a lot of this. Like, yes, the engineering team had to kind of, you know, in, intake the guidance and so forth and so on. But it sounds like what you have done is you've functionally built a, a pyramid uh, that has you at the top and your team. And how many people do open source on your team total? Uh, right now we have, uh, about four or five people. Four or five handling millions. Okay. Yeah. So that, that seems like a pretty amazing scale. Um, so, you, but effectively what you've done is you, it sounds like you have broken apart the end to end process and separated out the concerns so that the, that basically the people who are best equipped to focus on a given part of effectively the pipeline of the work, that's where they focus. Is that, is that a fair statement? Uh, I, I think that's right. I, I would just say it's it's actually less of a pyramid and more of a, a partnership. Uh, we would have never been able to do this without the strong partnership with the engineering team, and I don't think they would have been able to do it without us. And so it, it's really a, a lot of give and take and understanding and, and, and trust. Um, and a lot of it is automating the things that are that can be automated, being very clear on what we're okay with and what, what risk we're comfortable with. And one of the, you know, the conversations we have a lot is, what are we really trying to defend against and what are we trying to protect and what are we trying to accomplish? And a lot of times, maybe going back to an earlier point, as lawyers, we don't always know exactly what we're trying to defend against and what we're trying to protect. Uh, but when you're dealing with that volume, you really have to get really crisp on it. So for example, um, one of the things we try to defend against is uh, you know, what we call the crazy things, which is someone decides to you know, give away our crown jewels because it makes it easier for them to collaborate with, with the outside world. And you know, usually they're, they're right, it would make it easier, but do we really wanna do it? So you know, how do you guard against something like that? One is, you know, we basically say, did your team write all of this code that you're about to release? 
And that's one of our core questions. And the logic being that if you wrote the code, you are responsible adults, you can make the call to share it with the world. But you don't get to do that with someone else's code without them giving permission to do so. And so it's basically saying, what are we trying to defend against and how do we do this at scale? And so a simple question like that really drives a lot of the behavior uh, that uh, we, we want to have. But also, we have to trust the engineers to, to have the judgment to, you know, at, at the end of the day, it's their product. And so they, they need to be responsible for it. But you also did something really quite elegant there. You asked a question of the clients that they can answer in words that they understand. That doesn't require them to go become a master <laughs> in some other kind of arcana, right? Oh, yeah. But that that was, I think we were able to get there with partnership from the engineering team, where the engineering team was really great about saying, why are you asking six questions? And I don't even understand what uh, what what these questions are and how is an engineer going to answer this has no idea about the legal background, make it simpler. And so it was that like, back and forth that really was able to, you know, drive, drive better results because, you know, lawyers and engineers, we speak different languages and we have different mindsets, as you were noting in the beginning of the call, uh, call from, you know, training and, and background. And that that's the partnership that really allowed us to get to these questions that really got to the core of what we were trying to defend against. I like that reframing from pyramid to partnership. That makes a lot more sense to me than than what I was going after. So you built this fantastic partnership with the engineers. Do you have any insights on, you know, how how to do that, right? How how do you build trust with these these crazy crazy engineers? What's what's the process? Yeah, you know, it, it it's amazing because I think both both the legal side and the engineering side looked at the partnerships we had as really some of the most productive across the company, even among engineering groups. And I think it was, uh, it starts off with the idea that um, I think a lot of engineers are naturally concerned with attorneys who are just stopping progress. And I, I don't blame them for that because I've been in situations where, you know, an engineer is trying to do something and uh, the next thing you know, they're in a room with, with six attorneys. And that's a scary thing for them, and it's not really fair to them either. And I think a lot of it is just building up that trust of saying, look, we're, we're all trying to accomplish the same thing. We all have a common goal, but we're bringing different things to the table, and we will take your feedback as much as we expect you to take our feedback. And you know, in the case of, of this, what we would have is basically weekly meetings with the engineering team, the open source programs office, and literally prioritize things and, it, um, and and go back and forth on questions and you know iterate constantly and you know sometimes it was us pestering each other but in a lighthearted constructive way to get things done and you know that way they knew what was important to us and we knew what was important to them um, you know another great example that came out of this partnership is not only just the automation for driving the scale but um, there was some tooling that was to me some of the most important things we've done is that when you're using open source software, one of the main requirements is you have to provide attribution. So, you know, I, I've come up with kind of a, an odd hobby, but if you look at any of the software on your computer or on your phone, there's usually a, a place in the about box that says like legal notices or third party notices or open source licenses. And that lists all the open source components that are in there. And that is actually a deceptively complex and, and time consuming thing to do. Uh, because every component in your software has to have that. And that was, you know, previously a manual process that would take either lots of lawyer time or lots of engineering time, depending on the group. But as an example, one of our um, one of our products, VS Code, its notice file was something like 1,400 pages long. That took someone probably 10 hours a week to maintain. And it's, it's horrible work. It's, it's salt mine work. It's necessary, though, because we have to do it right. Um, and this is also something that gives no one a competitive advantage. No one wants to do it. It's a cost. Uh, we want to get it right, and we want to be a good open source citizen and do it right. And so in the partnership with the um, our open source programs office, we made it clear that it would be an amazing savings across the company to automate this. And open source programs office actually partnered with some of our friends over at Amazon who were working on a similar problem with the open source code. And now we've turned what used to be, you know, a massive job into a push the button affair that's automatically generated. And so for, right now from an engineer, it just happens you know, automatically. But it took us a lot 
to get there, but it was also understanding between legal and engineering and then the larger community, how do we solve this problem that's good for both of us? And I think once they realize we're trying to solve problems to help move the business forward, the trust just comes. So that, I think there's a, a gem in there, um, which was, it sounds like your team is, as a starting place, you really went out of your way to understand what is the business trying to accomplish. And you came to a, a really a common set of goals about maybe what success looks like. And so it was clear that, you know, you were looking to, to help the, the right outcomes happen, but that you weren't overly invested on, let's just call them uh, abstract legal notions. It was, we're in this together, we're gonna try to get an outcome and, and we're gonna w walk in the same direction. And I, I think the other part of that is because we were able to build up that trust, people realized that when we did re raise a legal issue, and there was a lot of back and forth with them, that it was a real issue, and here's why it's a real issue. We never just you know dictated by, by our position in the legal department that X must be done. We spent a lot of time saying, this is an issue, and here's why, and we, we, here's how we think it should be dealt with. But they really respected, I, I think, over time through this partnership that if we raise an issue, it was a real issue and not just some hypothetical edge case that we were trying to defend against. So that is a tip that I will offer to folks who are dealing with uh, engineers and other types of technical staff. So one thing they love is, so one, they love, many of them love puzzles. <laughs> and so if you offer syllogisms and logic that don't hold together, be you're making a trap for yourself because they, they will, wait a minute, but you said, but yeah. <laughs> But the other thing they really like is to have a sense of uh, really the, the, the numbers of like, so how likely is this to happen? And what I observe is a lot of legal professionals, they get very itchy when that starts to happen, because in many instances, we really don't have numbers for things, right? It's a lot of anecdata. It's, it's you know, wisdom based on small sample sizes. It's intuition. It's a lot of things that result in really good guidance but that is often difficult to articulate in a way that these types of clients and customers uh, feel comfortable with. Because in many instances, it's, I think to them, it sounds like, yeah, but you didn't actually give me something actionable. And so I'm curious if, if David, if you've run into this at all in your dealings with kind of, let's just say, tech, technologically savvy uh, customers and clients, and if you have any insights or perspectives on that. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess, uh... I won't say to say it, but anytime I have a client that says, tell me what the risk is and how much it's going to cost me, that, that's just a trap. Um, because, you know, it, it's not uncommon for the engineering groups to say, look, tell me what the risk is so I can account for it. And, you know, is it going to be a, is this a $10 problem or a $50 million problem? And I've seen attorneys, unfortunately, jump into and, you know, try to put a number on, on the unknowable. And that drives behavior because if uh, you come back with a really high number, um, it, it can stop the business from doing something when really there's not always a basis for that. And so when I get questions like that from the clients, I, you know, I, I'll often turn around and say, you know, in a very you know, constructive way, but almost jokingly saying, you know, you know, how much is it going to cost you to drive to work? Well, I don't know. I mean, we can say how much the gas is, but, you know, were you speeding? When, how, well, the last time you were speeding, how much did that cost you? I don't know. Did the police pull you over? Yes or no. Did, uh, did you get a ticket? Yes or no? If you got the ticket, were you able to fight it and win or, you know, or not? And all these variables come into place, and you know, we don't know. You, know. you might get lucky in speed and never get caught. You might get pulled over every day, and you'll lose your driver's license, and your insurance might go up. And so I think uh, oftentimes our clients are looking for us for certainty in a place where there is no certainty. There's just too many variables. And I think the best we can do is lay out all, all the different places. You know, In our case, you know, you're you're doing a transaction with a with a partner. What's the chance of you know this not working out? And what's the chance of us actually suing each other? And what's the chance of us if it's suing each other? What is going to be the damages are going to be? And there's so many variables that I just kind of like to bring it back to. You know what is the risk and what is our risk tolerance? Just understand that we can't give you an answer. But you actually you just gave us the answer right there. <laughs> so what did you do? Again, you're just sneaking these in. What you did is you laid out a series of risks. And what you did is you actually chained them 
together to, to basically describe what is, what's the dependency of these outcomes. And that starts to give uh, people a much better sense of, of how these things play out. If you effectively give people, think, think of it almost like as a decision tree. Of, so even if I can't tell you exactly. the likelihood of branch A, branch B, or branch C happening, if you then trace down uh, what are the other subsequent things that have to happen for the the really bad, the high, you know, the high risk outcomes to happen, then that at least it starts to give people a sense of is this a small number times a small number times a small number, right. or is this like uh, a medium number times a medium number? And if you think about that as a, uh, I'm not going to use any math, but if we think about that as a, a statistical kind of outcome. Yeah. That starts to give people a sense of, well, this is a black swan versus, a, yeah, this this kind of happens. And then you, if you start layering in the 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 general magnitude of the harm, uh, then I think you start to give people kind of a discount based approach to, is does this make the right, does this, does this make sense or does this not? The other thing that I have observed that you are very uh, adept at is giving people the other types of non-monetary risks that show up when you make certain business decisions because it's not just about the what is the legal remedy right like i i you are i think very good at helping people understand look we're going to be repeat players here so there's you know partner risk there's reputational risk and i think that's where you you bring both the science and the artistry to the counseling practice and i think it makes you very effective in, in using influence to have good, good outcomes happen thank you you know i just uh, got off the phone with a a, a large company that we we do fairly good amount of business with and it's a fairly complicated transaction and we've basically were able to handle it in about a 15 minute call because we both recognize that we're not going to sue each other over this and so now that we know we're not going to sue each other over this we're able to really move very quickly and and take reasonable risks um you know there's other companies i engage with where there still seems to be this belief that maybe we will sue each other and you know decisions can take months and sometimes that's required there are some some companies that you do have to be concerned about but i think uh having that practical point of view and when you can really uh you know find a partner on the other side that shares that view you can really move things forward uh, you know one example that really comes to mind is there was a, a company we used to do a lot of work with in the standards context and one thing that's nice about standards is it's it's a lot of repeat players it's a small community and if I'm negotiating with you in the morning on matter A, there's a good chance I'm going to be negotiating with you on a different matter, you know, in the afternoon. And if I go for the jugular in the morning, I'm pretty sure you're going to go for my jugular in the afternoon. And I remember once we were, you know, starting the, a new process of setting up a new standards organization. And the other side said, look, I know you like A, B, and C. And I said, yep, and I know you like, you know, C, D, and E. And basically in about 15 minutes, we, we short-circuited six months of negotiation. And I think building those relationships externally really helps move things forward for the for the clients. Yes, but I I hear tell that you have found other ways to accelerate the process of <laughs> of coming to agreement because so one the thing you're describing is is just a classical business problem, right? It's communication and coordination. How do we how do we find the commonality among us that makes the bargain make sense for both sides? Yeah, and if we're honest uh, among ourselves and, and anybody who might be listening, in many instances, I think we observe that some of our our colleagues, they either draw delight or they are being rewarded for scoring points on these things that it's not clear that anybody really cares about. <laughs> and so it seems like you've created some infrastructure that helps the, you know, the, the multi-party collaboration yeah. process go a little bit faster. Do you have any, can you maybe give us a, a little bit on that? Yeah, I can give you, you a few of them. I've been lucky to be involved in a few engagements that have really been formative and helpful. Um, one of the earlier ones was something called the Open Web Foundation. And it, what was happening, and this was probably back in you know, 2005, 2006, you had a lot of people who were drafting specifications in a very casual way, just a bunch of folks getting together, doing the work. And sometimes they would get... Um, they would get adopted and they would start getting a lot of industry adoption. But when it would get to a large company, they'd say, well, okay, hold on, what are the legal terms around this? And it turns out there were none because you had a bunch of engineers who were working for different companies just writing stuff down. And it would take us, you know, months to, to unsort, you know, sort, sort this whole issues out. And 
a group got together and formed what was called the Open Web Foundation, which was the idea to come up with a community-developed specification license. And it took us about a year and a half to do it, and we had representatives from across the industry working on this. But what we came up with was basically an open source style license, but for an area that never had that kind of uniformity in licensing. And that on one hand has allowed us to basically short circuit what used to be weeks and months of effort into something that's just an off the shelf solution. But I, I think the one you're probably referring to more is um, the Joint Development Foundation, um, which was, um, there was a time, and it's still not uncommon, so the uh, standards come in lots of shapes and sizes, everything from a two-person collaboration all the way up to you know, the international UN-based you know, standards uh, forum. But a lot of the work that we were doing was setting up consortiums, which are collaborations between anywhere from, let's say, two to, to 15 companies. And each one of those was its own special snowflake and was negotiated over and over again. Uh, and as I mentioned, sometimes it could take months and months and months. But it turns out at the end of the day, most of them kind of were all within the, the a range of reasonableness. And it was also hard to point out, uh, you know, why provision, why one succeeded and one failed. It was very hard to say, you know, because we had this voting provision in group one and didn't have it in group two, group two, you know, didn't work out as well. And so after basically creating these, you know, from internally, we simplified and simplified our agreements to make them much easier to uh, agree upon by taking out things that we didn't think we needed. Uh, basically, we're removing attack vectors. The more words are, the more places people can comment. And so if you, if you don't need it, take it out. Um, but effectively, what we did is we created a structure called the Joint Development Foundation that was a, you know, we call it a consortium in a box, where basically if you come, instead of having to create your own legal infrastructure and then once you create it, oftentimes you now need to bring in staffing and hire staff and file for nonprofit status and deal with trademarks and everything that goes in with running a business. We created a, basically a structure in a box where we created a series of agreements that were non-negotiable, uh, but decidedly reasonable. We, we drafted them uh, to be acceptable to, to the most amount of people across the, the, the industry without putting any gotchas in there. They're very fair, reasonable agreements. But we moved the negotiation to a series of boxes you can check off a menu, different intellectual property modes and different copyright modes and different patent modes with the idea of let's move the conversation away from the comma and into the, um, you know, the high level discussion of how we want this organization to be set up from a check the box approach. And, you know, I, I was lucky enough to have management that supported me to, to do this. Um, and basically we set up this infrastructure before we needed it. And it turns out to have been, you know, very successful. We've been able to move the process from setting up these consortium for months to uh, we've done it as, as close as fast as a week. Uh, and once you do it, you're automatically set up with your own nonprofit entity. And this thing grew uh, from, you know, an initial trial group to uh, at one point we had something like over a hundred companies that have signed it where it became too big for Microsoft to just to handle on our own. We had an independent board, it's an independent entity, but we eventually merged it into the Linux Foundation and they run it now. Uh, they're one of the largest uh, association management companies out there, but effectively we've had something like 15 or 20 <laughs> um, uh, organizations that have formed up under it. We've had over two, 200 companies have signed up to it. And it's really just become part of the industry infrastructure to set up standards orgs. And uh, it's, it's just what, how we do it now. And it's basically turned uh, what used to be a full-time job for me. And probably at the time when I joined Microsoft, there are five or six attorneys full-time doing standards to really being a, you know, me and a, a program manager who are managing this from the Microsoft side. And we're saving, you know, a massive amount of time, money and effort across the entire industry. Um, and building up, you know, relationships across the community for something like this. So it's really just been a, a fantastic platform that we've we've helped build that is driving not only Microsoft's goals but the industry's goals is, itself. So you you basically standardize standards. Yes, that's very meta. Um, <laughs> so you you also talked about a couple other things. I just want to observe. Um, so it, I think it takes some courage. To, as a legal professional to simplify things. Yeah. Uh, it, it takes very little courage to lard up an agreement with every possible contingency 
But I think you highlighted something that's really important is that when you do that, you create surface area for dispute over things that may not really matter to either side because they're practically not going, there's low likelihood of being relevant. So, yeah. I, and I, I'm not sure exactly, I don't, honestly, I don't know that our training or incentives going back to where we started and your observations about how we learn, it's, I think it's very hard for us to resist the siren call to like, well, let me just throw that one more provision in. So others, yeah, yeah, uh, so I just want to point one thing. So w one of the things we went through these agreements, we really tried to cut down to the bone, uh, and, and we took some risks there. And the risks are were probably hard for some people to swallow. I'm sure some of my litigation colleagues won't like this one, but things like um, I can't tell you how much time I've spent debating choice of law, and we've actually taken choice of law out of a lot of these agreements. And when the other side says, "Well, what's the choice of law?" and it's like basically we'll say you can sue us wherever you want, <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, that seems to be okay. Um, and there isn't litigation for this for the most part. But I think what we find is that it's from a, a psychological point of view, I think if I put lots of words on, 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 on an agreement, I will get lots of comments back. But it, for some reason, it's very seldom for someone to say, you know, you're really missing provision X and we need to put it back in. Uh, and, and so as, I think as long as you have a fair, reasonable agreement, I think you can, you know, if, if, if it's simple to understand and read, you can get away without having all of the boilerplate that's generally intended to protect, you know, unknown interests against unknown interests. So the, that makes sense. The other thing that, for whatever reason, I don't think in our profession, we seem to often intuitively understand is business is often about getting more at bats, right? Like most ventures don't go well and not for <laughs> legal issues, but yeah. for fundamental kind of business uh, disutility issues. And when you slow down the number, the, the business by basically removing the number of at bats they can take on things that have, you know, fixed downside, but potentially unlimited upside, yeah. then you're really missing out on all this opportunity that could have huge upside. But the, this is, again, one of, one of these challenges, and I'm, I, I'm curious about your thoughts on this because I've heard some people talk about this uh, in, a, in an email uh, alias that we, we participate in. Uh, the business people capture the upside, and the lawyers, and it feels like in many instances, we're stuck with the downside. <laughs> and I'm curious if, if that's your frame on this or if you have like a, a different perspective on, on that view. So it... it it is interesting that I, I think a lot of times you have the business folks that go out and they come up with the term sheet and then they, they almost blindly turn it over to the lawyers to finish off the negotiation. And, you know, as lawyers, we're, we're more prone and, and trained to look for the places where there, there could be problems. I, I've always been curious why some terms are considered business terms and others are considered legal terms. Um, you know, I, I, I've spent, you know, a lot of time arguing over warranties and indemnification clauses with other lawyers, and it's separated from the business goals. And the business people say, oh, it's a legal term. I'm not going to get involved in it. But I, I've always wondered why you can't just treat even terms that seem naturally to be lawyer terms like indemnification and turn it into a, a just another business deal. So you know, if I have a, a million dollars in life insurance and I want a million and a half, I would go to my insurance company and say, I'd like another half a million dollars in coverage. And they'd say, great, here's how much it's going to cost. I don't understand why we treat litigation or uh, indemnification as, as something that is just negotiated. Why not just say, look, great, you want greater indemnification? This is how much it's going to cost and take it back to your business folks and see if it's worth it for them. And I, I think a lot of times we forget that most of what we're dealing with are business terms and not you know, legal terms. So my naive response to why that doesn't happen is because the way that we practice, we often do not capture the inputs and the outputs of these negotiations. And when I outputs, I mean like the actual consequences. Like was there an actual indemnification claim or so forth and so on. And so it's very hard for us to price these things mm -hmm. by the nature of the way that we practice. Whereas if we executed more of our transactional systems in the way that you do in your practice, we could statistically say like, well, we've done 10,000 of these 
and we've had three claims for indemnification, and this is what they cost. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the future does not always, or the past does not always predict the future, but if we were going to effectively ask an insurer to write a policy on this, we could give them data and they could probably say, well, this is about how much it would, I would charge you in a premium to, to issue the policy that covers that, right? Yeah. But that, the way that we practice, we don't really do that. I, I think you've touched on something there as well, though, is that out of the you know hundreds of thousands of transactions a company like Microsoft enters into, and it's billions if you count things like terms of service on websites, the actual number of litigations that result in it are are almost you know negligible. There's there's hardly anything, and so I think even getting numbers. It, all, all, the risk of almost anything is much lower than I think we we tend to believe as lawyers. I I, I agree, and I suspect that in the coming eh, let's say decade, we will have system systems of intelligence that support our work, that will make it easier for us to connect the dots on these things and start measuring. Like so, this is the real risk on measured outcomes, because right now the way it works is somebody has to typically have enough uh, both altitude view and horizontal view to collect kind of anic data. Uh, you know, we call it wisdom, yeah. but it's basically enough, you know, time series data over a large enough surface area to see like, I, well, I did this work and these were the likely outcomes. And the challenge of that is it's one, it has a ton of recency bias that, you know, there, there's all kinds of issues that, that come up, but it wouldn't surprise me if in the coming decade, we start to have technological support that helps us really, let's just call them what they are, run experiments where, and by that, I mean, mm -hmm. we will literally, some of these experiments will be intentional. Many of them will be accidental where we'll have done things two different ways and we can see the outcomes. Um, and I think that's just gonna get really yeah. interesting. Yeah, I, I think I'd like to see that obviously, uh, but I also think part of it is also building relationships with your communities um, to help reduce the risks in, in a way that's harder to measure. So for example, in the open source world, as we talked about, we're dealing with massive amounts of, of open source transactions. And there are people in the open source community that care very deeply about this, as do we. And we've built relationships with them to say, look, we are, we are all in on open source. We are trying to do our best. We are doing this at scale. Here's all the things we're doing to get it right. But I promise you, we are going to make mistakes. And what I'd like to happen is you have to understand that when those mistakes happen, we will work in good faith to fix them. And so if you find something we're doing wrong, let us know and we will do our best to fix it. And I think when people realize we're not in an adversarial relationship and that mistakes will happen, I, I think you can get a lot farther than, than having the threat of litigation rather than, you know, as opposed to the promise of we're going to make it right. So this is the part of your practice that I think is quite special. Um, it, in many, I mean, look, I, I love what you do to basically, you know, work people process technology. Like I, that amazes me. But I do think that one of your real gifts is diplomacy, which is what you, I think you described a, a part of your practice earlier. And what you're describing is the ability to influence outcomes by effectively reducing some of the information asymmetry that causes us to observe divergence rather than convergence. Yeah. And that's part of our practice that's never going to go away. Absolutely. And the really, the, the interesting thing I observe is your, your, the some of the most gifted technicians, and by that I mean people who really understand the letter of the law, are less effective than the diplomats who understand the spirit of of really the spirit of things and human nature. Yeah. And I see so many people who what they do is they obscure so many avenues for creating constructive outcomes because they get <laughs> overly fixated on the, the technical aspects and they yeah. they effectively discard the relational. Yeah. So one of my favorite expressions is uh, bike shedding which came from a gentleman, I think his name was uh, Parkinson uh, in, in the 60s. And the notion was that uh, people will tend to focus on the, the trivial as opposed to the big picture items. So the example he would give is that, you know, there's a board that's uh, being asked to approve uh, the design of a nuclear reactor. And most people, this is a multi-million dollar decision, uh, involves lots of people, but no one on the board actually knows exactly how the reactor works, but they trust because it's so complicated, the experts have signed off on it. So there'll be about 10 or 15 minutes of conversation about it, but then it gets approved. But then the next topic that comes up is, you know, okay, we've got the reactor, now we need a bike shed so people can bike to it. Now, 
people feel bad that they weren't able to contribute to the larger picture of, of the reactor, but everyone knows about bike shed, what it should be. So you end up spending hours talking about the materials and the colors and how many bikes it should store because people are trying to add value. And then the next decision is we have to have a lunch to celebrate. And everybody knows about lunch. Even more time is spent determining what sandwiches to get as opposed to the reactor. And I think it's a natural tendency people have is they want to add value. They want to help, but they might not understand the larger picture. And I, I think you know, in the legal sense, sense, a lot of lawyers will tend to naturally focus on the things where they believe they can add value uh, because they might not feel they can add to the, the larger business picture, but they can sure talk about that warranty provision or the indemnification provision. And it's, I think it's just human nature that you have to recognize uh, and, and work with. Um, and I think you can accomplish a lot more, you know, kind of building those relationships and building the trust and being able to say, you know, do we really need to worry about this? Uh, I think that can accomplish a lot. So I think you just gave us the maybe the real secret to scale, which is really trying to stay as focused as possible on the big picture of things embracing that sometimes there's a technical solution sometimes there's you know changing the underlying uh physics of the realm by by thinking about what should the law look like but often the easiest solution is relational like just Absolutely. understanding like who's in the mix what do they care about because things like culture and incentives those scale <laughs> yeah. yeah. And when you understand those and, and what's really driving behaviors and decision making, like that's how you can come up with the kinds of outcomes that, you know, work at the, the scale of the practice that that you service. Yeah. Um, it might sound kind of odd, but one of the biggest compliments I, I, I can I, I've received when you were in these engagements is at the end of the, the, the transaction. The other side says to me, and you were the attorney. It's <laughs> <was> like, yeah, <laughs> because, you know, I think. Um, one of the places where I think as attorneys we can add the most value is we ultimately get in the door in the beginning because we are the attorney and they have to talk to us. But they keep you there and they call you back because you're adding more value. And I think a lot of attorneys forget that they're, they're not just there to deal with the legal terms. It's likely that we have seen far more of these transactions than our clients have and have a far broader view of how the larger ecosystem works. And if we can then come in and use that experience to make our clients smarter – and allow them to be more successful, you build a long-term partnership where you can you know, weigh in on the legal issues, but also say, look, I've seen, I've seen 50 of these things, and here's some things you might want to watch out for you know, on the business side or the technical side. And so that's kind of the partnership that, that builds trust. I don't think I have any wisdom to add on that. David, <laughs> the time has flown by. I, I, I think people understand why you are somebody whose counsel I seek uh, on many topics. Um, Thank you Likewise. so much for you. making the time. Well, thank you for having me. This has been great. All right. Well, we'll now look for other excuses to uh, to nerd out and maybe bring you back to talk about some some of the other nerdery that we have in the mix. <laughs> Excellent. Looking forward to it. Thank you. All right. Thank you, sir. Take care.